0: Trade Bites, Bites. the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, BorderLex. In this series of podcasts, we're casting a sceptical but never jaundiced eye over the multifaceted landscape that is UK trade policy. And in this latest episode, it's all about that deal, the UK's trade and cooperation agreement with the EU, or the TCA as we trade geeks like to call it. Emulating Santa Claus's own just-in-time delivery model, the TCA landed in our fireplaces on Christmas Eve, giving businesses, administrators and pundits precious little time to absorb the details before the deal went into force on New Year's Day. So far, the focus has mainly been on the border issues, with supermarket supplies running short in a few areas and lorry drivers' ham sandwiches being confiscated by Dutch customs officials. But while the UK's Michael Gove always said there would be bumps in the road to begin with, where will the TCA deal ultimately lead us? What sort of an agreement is it? And could it yet be improved upon? And what will it mean for UK businesses which have dealings with the EU? To consider these questions, I'm joined by a brilliant panel of expert analysts who spent their Christmas holidays doing little else other than scrutinising the new EU trade agreement so that you don't have to. I'm joined by Professor Alan Winters, Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex and Founding Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Also with us is Jill Rutter, Senior Research Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe. And I'm joined also by someone I know quite well, Jana Dreyer, Founder and Editor of BorderLex. Thank you all for being with us today. Alan Winters. Boris Johnson said he wanted a Canada-style trade deal, by which he meant not one with maple leaf flags all over it, but one which was a basic free trade agreement, similar to the trade deal which Canada has with the EU. Did he get what he was after?
1: He got more or less what he was after. In fact, during May, when we published our view about what the trade agreement might include, we added some bells and whistles, and he hasn't got most of those. And he has ended up with some rather tough dispute settlement and enforcement mechanisms than he would wish. But he has managed to put a bit of distance between the UK and
0: uh, what conditions were as members of the European Union. Jill Rutter, as a student of government, based on the government's own terms of reference, do you think the TCA lives up to the, the government's own aspirations for what a successful outcome was going to look like?
2: Pretty much so. I mean, the government seemed to me to prioritise sovereignty to get a zero-tariff, zero-quota deal with you know minimum restrictions, no jurisdiction for the European Court of Justice, minimum nominal restrictions on their sovereignty. The real interesting thing to come is how far can they actually diverge in practice, some of the commitments they've made, while retaining that zero-tariff, zero-quota deal. And I think that's that's the big question mark hanging over this deal. They didn't get that much on fish. You could argue they sacrificed that at the end of the day quite sensibly. But it was largely a defensive play by the UK rather than one where they promoted lots of interesting innovations and aggressive interests.
0: Jana Dreyer, we always expected that there would be some sort of short-term teething problems as the deal entered into force, and, and we've been seeing those in the early part of January. But I just wonder to what extent you think these problems are short-term, or to what extent they might be signs of longer-term problems, which might have more lasting consequences.
3: I do think that this deal will have lasting consequences. This will, the fact that there's so many new trade barriers coming up, a lot of business models in the UK will have to adapt or just die. A lot of businesses will probably need to make adjustments and propose something different in terms of their offering to the EU market and to the world market at the same time. That implies less physical operations. And this is going to be the big challenge. And we'll probably find out a lot about this in the coming months and years.
0: Alan, we've known for at least two years that the UK was going to leave the customs union, whatever the other outcomes were going to be. Why is it that traders are are so surprised by what's happening now? You know, I, I wonder if there's been a, a sort of a failure of communication or failure perhaps to be honest about what this deal entailed. And Alan and Jill, perhaps you both have views on that. I think far be it from me to say it wasn't honest.
1: But it wasn't always completely clear. I think in truth, we haven't really known that this is where we were going to end up until the December 2019 election. Until that point, essentially everything was open and it could very well have turned out different. Even after 2019, there was certainly a view that there was a whole sort of political spiel going on, which was very bombastic. But I think quite a lot of people thought it might get mugged by reality. And so even then, I think business thought, well, we don't quite know what we're going to be adjusting to, so let's hold off. And then, of course, I mean, COVID does certainly bears some responsibility for the slowness to adjust. Having said that, to release an agreement on Christmas Eve, to have spent the previous, what, six or eight weeks essentially exchanging insults with the EU, left people with very, very, I think, unclear whether there was going to be zero tariffs, zero quotas, let alone all the rest, and no detail at all about what forms you would have to fill up and so on. So while there was quite a lot of sort of training in the abstract firms might have done with their staff and thinking about their supply chains But uh, clearly there was always some finite chance that it wasn't going to be worthwhile because actually the goalposts were somewhere different from what you'd assumed so i think sort of battered by covid sort of confused by the messaging most firms just battened down the hatches and thought let's see how it goes and we'll work it out over january
2: I think Alan's right there that, you know, what bandwidth there was for planning was taken up by COVID. We saw that affected companies' cash flow very badly, but also the government has to take some responsibility for it. Its communications campaign in the summer was so determined to focus on the opportunities from Brexit rather than actually say we're about to dump an absolutely unbelievable amount of red tape on you. Deal or no deal. It actually didn't necessarily put business in the right place to start thinking about that. And I think that was compounded as well by people like the CBI who were arguing very much, we need a deal with the sense that a deal was a bit of a get out of jail free card and actually would preserve what businesses might think. You know, when we avoided no deal through 2019, businesses that hadn't bothered to prepare were actually in a better position than the businesses that had prepared. They hadn't wasted that money on preparations and they saw the preservation of the status quo. I think the idea that a deal brought loads of difficulties too was a very difficult thing to communicate. And some of the things, of course, are only consequences on the deal. No deal means you don't have to bother about rules of origin documentation because there are no preferential tariffs to access. So I think, you know, that's quite a difficult set of messages. But it's basically... Hard for a government to say, you can't believe what we're about to inflict on you. And that was the message they had to give.
0: Jana, what about the EU's role in all of this? Are the EU playing fair in terms of the way that the deal is being implemented so far? And do you think the EU will be willing to make improvements to the uh, agreement at any time in the near future?
3: I think the question of fairness is impossible to answer. One thing I can say is that the EU's discourse and ways of acting throughout the negotiations, from day one, has been fairly consistent. So, in a way, we must have seen it coming. Then there was there was domestic politics in the sense that it's very clear that many member states, France above them in a leading way, but everyone really wanted to show an example of what it means. To leave the EU, that you're outside. So that's why the EU was not ready, for example, to, you know, be lenient on day one on everything that has to do with paperwork or having ham sandwiches in your car. I think that was a political message there, that was obviously not helped either by the UK government's own very rigid attitude to many topics, especially no willingness to yet again extend the deadline for the transition period. The UK government did not ask for an implementation period. One could have conceived a period of six months or to a year. Within the deal to say, okay, we need a phase-in period, the UK government did not ask. So that's what the U, you know, the UK got in the end. So there's a bit of both. In terms of revising the agreement itself, the text, the terms, such as the tariff schedule, the rules of origin, the services schedule. Potentially include an improved chapter on technical standards, etc. I don't see there is much scope to do much in the short term. I think Brussels itself is a bit tired <laughs> about this. Everyone who went to will want to wait and see where this goes. It's also a very complicated process to launch fresh negotiations in the EU. You need a mandate, and much will depend on the politics, on the feeling, the impression the EU gets about its new relationship with the United Kingdom. A lot isn't clear. So not much change to the terms of the agreement itself uh, foreseeable in the short term.
1: I'd like to add one thing to what Jana said, and that is it does seem to me that the issue of trust is very big in all of this, and I think the decision in October to suggest that we might uh, essentially renege on the withdrawal agreement over the Northern Ireland Protocol actually was very costly. It made it more or less impossible for the EU to take, as it were, a sympathetic line in what were sort of necessarily a set of rules that uh, looked fairly rigid, but which could have been implemented in uh, moderately sympathetic ways, perhaps. So I think, in a sense, the issue is about whether the EU is playing fair. It's more that I think the EU is playing rigid. They're playing by the rules of the book. And I think the uh, sort of play is in a sense to say to the uh, Johnson government, you have got to have a big change in attitude before we could think about doing very much more. In the end, these agreements have to be partly self-enforcing, you know, the sort of the policing mechanisms only go so far. And that until essentially... Those bits of the Conservative Party and those bits of the press that have been so um, uh, vocal over the last five years are willing to concede that Britain is relatively small and has to give some things up. I rather doubt if there's going to be very much coming the other way.
0: Jana, about 12 months ago, there were quite a lot of people who didn't really know what rules of origin were. I suspect that there's a lot fewer people now who are ignorant of that concept. What do you think the imposition of rules of origin for EU-UK trade might mean for the kind of trade flows and trade models which have built up between Britain and the rest of Europe over the past years and decades?
3: Well, these changes might be quite dramatic, actually, for some industries, because in the public debate, Rules of Origin was presented as paperwork, but it's just not just form filling. It's about having, especially industrial companies that are embedded in global and regional supply chains, they they source inputs and components from all over the world, from the EU and elsewhere. They need to review their entire supply chain, potentially make adjustments, which could affect the whole cost structure of doing business. I tend to think that, you know, industries such as the car industry, everything that has to do with IT, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, all these industries will have to change their business models in a way if they want to continue to benefit from tariff-free trade for the EU. I don't know exactly where individual companies are. This is partly a company issue, but this will be a long-drawn process. It definitely heralds the end of just-in-time manufacturing. It might be Comparable to the situation with Switzerland, where there is a free trade agreement as well, but Switzerland is integrated in European supply chain, for example, in the auto industry, but not in the just-in-time model. It's specific components with a lot of high-value content that Switzerland delivers to the auto industry in southern Germany, for example. So, it's a different way of doing business. It is possible, but one needs to really add a lot of value to the European industry, and it's a bit the same the other way around. So, what we are going to see is a dramatic change and growth grad- over the next few years in the business model, of British industry.
0: Alan, it seems to me that rules of origin are really the sort of the silent assassin of, of the whole thing in terms of the competitivity of UK business, especially because we have built up this pattern where our supply chains are deeply integrated with the rest of the world. Do you see this as being really a serious blow for the UK's industrial model as it's evolved over the past however many years?
1: I think it clearly is a threat to the model as it's grown up over the last uh, few decades. We've come used to the idea that there are global value chains and also regional value chains. And essentially what uh, the rules of origin in the TCA are doing is, you know, at least putting friction into that, if not um, solid barriers. Of course, there are going to be plenty of firm sectors where this is not an issue, but in a number of important sectors it's becoming plain that there are issues we've talked about sort of motor vehicles sourced from all over the world and the EU's attitude towards so-called cumulation, which means that even if they have an agreement with Japan and we have an agreement with Japan, we cannot either of us count Japanese inputs as helping to meet our content requirements to get preferential trade between the EU and the UK. That means that for sectors like that, we have got uh, quite a serious problem We also have this uh, potentially serious problem that has really, in a sense, only uh, come to light, I think, over the last or come to public awareness over the last week or so. And that's right at the other end, that goods coming out of the EU into the UK, if there's substantial processing, we can count those inputs as British content when we send them back to the EU. But if there's not substantial processing, if there is only processing insufficient to give these things UK origin, it turns out that even the EU bits of those transactions will face tariffs going back into the EU. And I think that's been a little bit of a surprise. One can easily write conditions into rules of origin that permit, you know, biscuits to be repacked in one partner and sent back to the other. And um, as far as one can understand, the EU pretty consciously decided it didn't want to do that. And we've never, I've never heard anyone in the British side say, oh, we really needed that, and they just wouldn't give it to us. It feels to me like this has been, as it were, a real silent killer that we didn't expect.
2: If I could just come in on that, Chris, I think one of the really interesting questions that this looks to is the way the UK went about this negotiation. You know, To what extent was it actually talking to business, understanding business models and understanding How they would interact with different rules that they were signing up to. We'd had that sort of exchange in the autumn with the car manufacturers, Randy Street writing to David Frost and Liz Truss, saying you need to agree this on rules of origin. We saw an intervention actually by the EU car manufacturers saying that in order to develop electric vehicles, they needed laxer rules of origin than the EU appeared to want to concede and actually got that short term concession with the aim of uh, developing some EU capacity, EU or UK capacity, to manufacture batteries which account for a huge proportion of uh, the value of an electric car. So I think it's really interesting to what does this expose about the way in which we went around this negotiation. It was a very closed negotiation. It wasn't one where you felt that businesses were really at the table feeding in their very specific asks, as you might have expected in more normal trade negotiation with some sort of toing and froing between the negotiators to understand the business implications. So I think it's a really interesting lesson as well for DIT about making sure that what they're negotiating when they get onto new agreements actually works for the business models that they have and allows UK business to develop in the way it wants to in the future.
0: Jana, so far we've talked mostly about movement of goods, but of course there are frictions, considerable frictions and restrictions now on what service providers can do, both UK into the EU and vice versa. And of course the UK, although it one of its big strengths is its financial services sector, that is really not really addressed very comprehensively at all in the trading cooperation agreement. So I wonder whether, in your view, we can expect to see any kind of relief on financial services or any other areas like, for example, recognition of professional qualifications where the outcome of the deal has really been quite underwhelming.
3: I think the most important and the most urgent issue is the issue of cross-border data flows. Our economy is digitalizing massively and every single sector of the economy Including agriculture, but also obviously manufacturing, every services exporter uses the internet. We need to have a stable framework and an open framework to be able to send business and you know individual data across borders without uh, running into huge costs because we need to locate servers here and there. So, this is the most urgent question that will determine a lot in terms of uh, services, the viability of of many services transactions across, across the EU. Here, there is one, you know, that's probably the one area where the EU has been very lenient. It leaves the UK six months, basically, to continue to operate on the same terms as so far. And in In that period, the EU will make an assessment if the UK's new post-Brexit regime, regulatory regime on the protection of personal data is equivalent to that of the EU. The noise from Brussels is that the EU is very much disposed, ready to give that equivalent status to the UK, but a lot will ultimately depend on the noises we get from London in terms of the willingness to diverge in terms of these kind of regulations. That will be interesting in the UK, in the triangular conversation about data flows with the United States in particular. So there's data, and I think this is the most important. The other big issue is the temporary movement of professionals. Now we are outside the EU's free movement regime. So you cannot just go hop on the Eurostar, take another train down to Turin in Italy, and you know, either be sent by your own company if you're working, say, for an audit company. You can no longer just do that. In some countries, you'll need to apply for a work visa if you're going to you know, work for a company or offer, you know, do a maintenance service or advise or do consultancy. This whole movement of people that is seamless, that we've taken for granted is over. And everyone in any business will need to check with every single country what are the conditions. They need a work permit to be able to continue to work there in future so this is an impediment it's also a problem for the uk side because you cannot obviously recruit as freely as you want it and as flexibly as you want it so this will also be hamper basically eu uk trade and this is the direct consequence from the eu perspective the direct consequence of the uk decision to terminate free movement there are provisions in the agreement itself there's a services schedule that's how they call it where the prohibitions on temporary movement are listed. So it's at least written pretty clearly where you can go, where you cannot go, but it's going to be much more complicated than so far.
1: Yeah, let me make a couple of points, if I may. Uh, First, let me just make a shout for sort of non-high-tech services, uh, transportation the rights of British transportation firms to trade within Europe, or even the way in which it trades between the UK and Europe, has been curtailed. The solution which EasyJet and Ryanair have adopted is to make sure they're registered within the European Union. And that, I think, is actually of a much broader importance, why didn't the service sectors explain to the government that they were 80% of the economy and there were some serious things they needed? Well, I rather suspect it was that many of them are essentially largely soluble by relocating your registration or perhaps relocating some of your people. And you might say, well, that's fine, they can go, we don't need them. Well, we do need them because they pay taxes. They pay big taxes. And so I think tied up with this sort of rather casual and neglectful or perhaps the antithetical attitude towards services that we've seen right from 2017, remember, is actually that there's a public finance dimension to this that is going to come back to bite us and going to be a cause of some regret going forward.
2: Just to back up what Alan's been saying there, I think the really interesting thing is there are two different things, one of which is, what does this mean for individual businesses? And I think particularly with lots of the no deal last year, and particularly look at financial services, a lot of those businesses have already worked out how they adjust to that and have started to move people, we've seen quite a lot of assets move over to the EU or people, as Alan said, you know, change their registration base. If you're an audiovisual, you probably reckon there was never a chance France would concede an audiovisual chapter in this agreement. They haven't. EU never does. So people will be sort of looking and saying, do I need to put some operation to Amsterdam or Dublin or Madrid or wherever to do those? So the thing about business continuity. But that's not the same as the impact on the UK economy. And I think we need to differentiate between those things. And actually, you could say that a lot of businesses took the view that actually it was more productive just to adapt than it was to sort of basically make themselves very unpopular, keeping and beating at a relatively, apparently deaf and uninterested British government. And you've seen the consequences of that. The interesting question is, do we create new opportunities that, you know, mean different businesses expand and we have new opportunities back here in the UK because, you know, a lot of our existing businesses will move some things. We also may see a position where People find it easier to employ people with movement rights within the EU. So people who hold EU passports and EU qualifications rather than sort of British passports and British qualifications. So even in the UK, you might find that, you know, not having managed to get your Irish passport becomes a bit of a disadvantage if it's something that requires people to be able to travel at very short notice.
0: So as we move towards wrapping up our podcast, I'd like to ask each of you to wield your respective crystal balls and, and look a little little bit into the future to try and guess, or I suppose guess is probably the, the best verb to use, What all of this means for the UK's relationship with the EU in the medium to long term? In, say, three years from now, in 10 years from now, where do you think this leaves us in terms of Britain's relationship with the European Union always been a bit of a poison chalice over many decades? Is there any possibility that there will be a head of steam building up for the UK to want to rejoin the EU? And does this deal make any particular scenario more or less likely? Alan, I'm interested to know what your view is. Gosh, this is uh, really uh, crystal ball territory. It's possible
1: that we're going to get a real surge of realism and just sort of settle down essentially to playing the European game without a seat at the big table. It's not a stupid thing to do from an economic point of view, but it is uh, perhaps rather offensive to uh, sovereignty and the great British history that is much talked about. For those of you who know me, I'm always a pessimist. So let me say I worry that this deal actually sows the seeds of ongoing frictions that's going to make it very difficult to adopt that position. It's interesting that the Swiss have been in constant negotiation with the EU uh, since basically since 1992, and it's irritated them. There's even less interest in joining the European Union now than there used to be. I fear that uh, with the uh, political history we've got, with the press that we've got, there's just going to be a sequence of issues where there's uh, pretend or real outrage about offensiveness, about being bullied, and in a sense we'll never quite get over that hump. So it will just be a sort of constant sore, a scab that we keep picking at. How confident am I that it's going to turn out like that? Well, I'm certainly not saying it's inevitable, But I do think it requires a lot of maturity to avoid that sort of outcome.
0: Jana, is the EU ready for a new kind of relationship with the UK that's sustainable over the longer term?
3: In the short term, I don't really think so. I think everyone is tired and exhausted in Brussels after these negotiations. And there is, I don't think, not currently a a mood to make, you know, to give the UK any favours in this sense in the short term. I think what we need to look at if we look into a 10-year horizon is geopolitics, something that has nothing to do with really economics. And I think that goes back to the origins of a lot of trade policy at the end, because trade policy depends a lot on global order, <laughs> to put it mildly. The configuration we've had so far with with the UK in the EU is that the UK has always seen the participation in the eu as a mainly an economic project while not wanting really to adhere to the original political project which was to create a union and uh, i don't see this disappear but because you know the uk was also had this special political military relationship with the united states now we have the united states in flux in terms of, you know, its role in the world, its role as security provider, even in Europe. And this is not something that has to do only with the Trump administration. We've seen signs of a desire to retreat from Europe already before in the Obama administration, and this is probably going to continue. So a lot, I think, would depend on how the UK reassesses its geopolitical relationship in the world and then reassesses its relationship with the EU, which the EU would like to see also as broader in including, uh, you know, security and international security cooperation, not just police cooperation. So I think a lot will depend on this. And then you can fix the trade policy part more easily after that.
0: Jill, final words from you.
2: I think the interesting question is, does the EU treat this agreement as basically being a Canada ish agreement with as much interest in the UK as it has in Canada. Some people have commented that the architecture is quite similar to the Canada agreement. Or is it like the Switzerland agreement where the EU is always looking at quite what the UK is doing? I think probably the best thing in both sides' interests is for this to massively fall down the agenda, to sort of get through the teething problems, find a way of productively solving mutual interests, mutual issues when they come up in a relatively pragmatic way. And actually for the EU to recognise that losing the UK was annoying, frustrating, but equally has enabled the EU to proceed with things that it wouldn't have been able to do. So there are sort of upsides from not having the UK at the table. And for the UK to realise that actually it's now taking control, it can regard the EU and the member states as big, you know, big potential allies, a sort of language about special relationship that Boris Johnson and Michael Gove done, a very important part of that. But we actually needn't be neurotic about it anymore and, you know, that, to remove that. And I think if we can get to that, then we can, uh, you know, where this is relatively low-key, we've seen throughout this year that Brexit barely gets reported in the EU press, is massively down the bottom of leaders' in trays until maybe a couple of weeks before Christmas Eve, and maybe it'll just sort of sink back down there, and, yeah, we'll have a period when we don't bang on about Europe.
0: I think quite a few people would be much in favour of that, if it comes to pass. But on that note, we have to wrap up our podcast today. So many thanks indeed to my guests, to Professor Alan Winters, to Jill Rutter and to Jana Dreyer. And of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. Join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.